Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've been covering the book of Acts here for quite some time, and as we've been discussing a few weeks ago, that Paul, Paul has been going through quite a few ups and downs in his missionary journeys. We've seen that he's been imprisoned. We've seen that he's been beaten. We've seen that uh, the arrests that occurred, as we discussed previously, was illegal. They were breaking the law and what they had done. And as Paul departs and goes to where we're going to be this morning in Thessalonica, um, just as soon as everything seems to go well, there are more trials awaiting him there. This morning we're going to be looking at specifically being open to the truth. You see, a lot of us were open-minded to certain things, and yet other things were very closed off on. The most open-minded person is still closed on certain things. A lot of people say, you know, I'm very open-minded to this concept of Christianity. I'm very open-minded to the different religious faiths out there. I'm really willing to just kind of see what they say. But truth be told, uh, there's an animosity many times by default by those folks that state that. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the Bereans, ultimately, later on in the text, and how their open-mindedness really stemmed from their comparison to what Paul said to what the Holy Scriptures stated. We're going to be looking at three things here in this chapter. We're going to be looking at, number one, the normal routine, verses 1 through 4. Number two, the emotionally charged crowd, verses 5 through 9. And number three, the balanced approach, verses 10 through 15. So number one, the normal routine, verses 1 through 4. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So what we see here is that Paul is traveling to Thessalonica, but he doesn't stop at those first two cities that are mentioned. And there's actually no record of them even having synagogues to begin with. So Paul would keep going until he could bring the gospel to the Jewish audience first, as was his priority. It's apparent that Luke at this time is not with Paul. Timothy and Silas are. And we see that simply by what, when it says, when they had passed. So Luke is not including himself in this group. Paul gets to Thessalonica and goes back to his normal routine. His normal routine, or custom, if you will, was preaching the gospel in the synagogue, reasoning and explaining the scriptures and how they point to Christ. And those that would listen would hear him connect that with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Paul explains that Jesus had to suffer and die, which would connect some of those missing dots for the Jewish audience, which assumed that Messiah was only here to reign. They missed the other portion, that he did not just come only to reign, but to suffer and die on their behalf. Paul here, though, what is interesting, and, and if you look in this text, is he does not perform any miracles. He does not do anything to, if you will, confirm his message as he does in other places but simply reasons to them from the Word of God. 
A very commonly misunderstood point by many today is that miracles are needed to confirm God's presence. That's just simply not true. It wasn't even true in this case right here because Paul is simply reasoning through the Word of God with those in the synagogue. The simple word, believer, is enough for salvation. I know a lot of churches like a lot of different gimmicks. They like to get people in with certain things, and they think, hey, if I just do this, then people will come, and then they'll eventually love Jesus, and then they'll use that same tactic in reaching others. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of churches are filled with gimmicks rather than the Word of God. The Word of God is given maybe 10, 15 minutes of the whole period of time that people are gathered for worship. And unfortunately, it's a disgrace to the church of God. The Word of God is more important than anything that I could mention. The Word of God is more important than anything that anyone can say. And unfortunately, a lot of us really need that more than we need all the other things that we think we need every single day. In fact, Scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was Jesus himself declaring how important the Word of God is while he was starving, mind you. While he was starving and being tempted by Satan himself. Paul here has a custom or routine, if you will, that followed in sharing the gospel in the synagogues first. He always started with the synagogue first. So let me ask really quick, I mean, this is just for all of us to think through, what are some routines that we have, right? We all have routines. Just as Paul has his routine when it comes to gospel ministry, we all have routines, right? We start with basic things like brushing our teeth in the morning, getting ready, taking a shower. Some of us, the first thing is checking our Facebook, you know. And then for most of us, we have to drive to work somewhere, right? Most of us don't work from home, so we have to drive into work. But what are those routine things that we do when it comes to the faith? What are those things that we would consider routine when it comes to the faith? Like the reading of Scripture. Do we do it enough that it truly is a routine for us? Meaning that if others were around us, they would know this is what we do every single day. Is it frequent enough that it's a habit and a routine, if you will, in our lives? What about prayer? Is it just the typical, Lord, thank you for this day? Gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. What is, what is prayer like to us? Is prayer something where we really truly ask for God's forgiveness? Do we pray for others faithfully? It's a routine. It's something we do frequently. Do we pray for our own hearts to be in tune with God's as we read His Word? You see, unfortunately for a lot of us, the prayer is only around the dinner table. And let me tell you, some of the most precious moments, I think, for me in my life, if I was to be transparent, are the moments of what I consider spontaneous prayer with my children or even with my family when I was growing up. When there was a need that's mentioned, somebody's going through a hard time, and let, hey, children, let's, let's gather around the table. We're going to pray right now. We're going to pray for this individual. We're going to pray for this circumstance. And those have been some of the most precious memories for me growing up and even right now as a father. Uh, because what happens is we tend to find ourselves out of routine many times. The things that we think would be routine are not always routine for us, if we were to be honest. Fellowship. How does fellowship tie into this? Well, fellowship is encouraged throughout the Word of God. That's the whole point of the congregation in the Old Testament and the church in the New. That's fellowship. And that fellowship is ultimately found around the Word of God. I know a lot of, a lot of you may assume that it's food that equals fellowship. 
But I can assure you that when God speaks of fellowship, it's talking about his word and what brings us in common. Now, food can be included. Jesus himself fed the multitude with food and still preached to them. So food is a good thing to have, but ultimate fellowship is found around the word of God, and that's what brings us in line with one another. Here's another question. Is it routine for us to offer a helping hand to others? Like when we see someone in need, is it routine? Is it just the normal pattern of our life that we're going to offer a helping hand to somebody that's in need? What an incredible blessing it is for us to be constantly available by God to use, to help others. If this is our custom to help others instead of waiting for others to help us. You see, a lot of people, they're waiting for others to help them. That's their routine. In fact, they wake up with, who's going to do something for me today? Is it our custom, is it our routine to be on the lookout for how we can be a help to others rather than how they can be a help to us? Here's another question. Is the routine of our life gospel-focused? Do everything that we do have this end goal of the gospel message itself? Like when I'm parenting my kids, is the gospel message really what's resonating? I remember who I am before God and how I parent my kids. Is the gospel message resonate when I have certain folks that I'm dealing with at the time? Am I always thinking through what are the, what are the things that I'm going through right now and what are they going through and how does this connect to the gospel? Do we routinely think of ways that we should live out the gospel before others? Do we have a routine which we have a direct conversation with people that eventually leads people to know that Jesus matters to us, the gospel matters to us, that we do truly love and care for them because we want them to know Christ? What is the hardest thing when it comes to routine? And I think this is really common for all of us, is to be consistent. To be consistent with our routine. Because I don't know about you, I tend to find myself in certain routines and then I break that routine. And then it takes some effort to actually go back on track. Because what ends up happening with routines is they become mundane. We get kind of used to them, right? The same thing, all right, I'm heading out today, I'm going to do this. Oh yeah, I forgot, I got to grab milk. Pick it up at the gas station because I didn't have enough time to grocery shop. You know, and, and those routines end up being kind of mundane to us, and we eventually start switching things up. And the things that we should prioritize, we put down the list. So many times in our relationship with God and others, if we're not careful, we start off with a passionate delight. And that, that delight keeps growing but that delight fades to a duty. And before you know it, that duty turns into a drudgery. And we don't even see it coming many times. The things we were so excited about, man, I can't wait to get into discipleship group. It's amazing. I love this new thing that Pastor Roman's been talking about. All right, I guess I got to go this week. I don't think it matters at all anymore. I've already tried it. it hasn't fixed anything. And we go through all those stages, don't we? As I always tell those that ask me, why is it that right now I'm struggling through things? You have to understand, you're fighting for more than yourself when you're fighting sin. 
You're fighting for more than yourself in your delight for the things of God because you have people watching you. There's not a single one of us that really is an isolated island to themselves. We have other people around us that are watching us at all times. For a father, the children are watching. For a mother, the children are watching. To those in the congregation, others are watching. Your coworkers are watching. Everybody's watching you. You're not just alone by yourself. And unfortunately, just like anything in life, it starts off exciting, right? When we get our first new job, our new car, our new home, for some of us, our new spouse, our children. Everything's a thrill in the beginning, right? We're like so excited. This is a new thing in our life. And as time goes on, the thrill kind of goes away for some reason. It's not as exciting as it used to be for some reason. Why is that? Well, we don't realize that working that job, as wonderful as it was, and we assume this new job is way better than the old job, right? Like it's way better. This new job is where it's at. And then we realize two weeks later, people are the same, and I'm still the same person. I'm still going to have to deal with me and the things that I don't like. And that new car that I bought that I'm so excited about, hey, car payments two years later. And I've got things that broke in the house, and I need to deal with that. And I still got this payment for a car. Sometimes our marriage isn't how it started. And unfortunately, we hit rocky, rocky roads. And it becomes difficult at times. And what seems to have been a delight is now a duty. And unfortunately, some people get to a drudgery. It's understanding where we are in our relationship with God that matters here, folks. Because that matters the most. That discipleship group thing was pretty exciting, right? But it just got a little more boring after a while. And now, I'm just not even sure I want to do it anymore. What you need to understand, your relationship with God matters way more than all the other things that you're bothered by in life that you're missing the mark on. Because I'll tell you right now, your relationship with God is what's going to fix that marriage. Your relationship with God is what's going to fix that frustration that you have in other areas. You see, if you take the Word of God and you apply Proverbs, a lot of those things where we call debt that we don't think really strangles us, it does. And we realize, wait a second, God doesn't want me to do this. You see, the truth is, we get into that routine just like the psalmist David did, where it's no longer that delight. And sometimes it's hard to know if you're not really just routinely reading the Word of God without any delight. Listen to what Psalm 43.5 says. I don't know if you've been there, but I know I have. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Or as the Holman Standard Bible states, Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. You see, I would strongly recommend for those of us that are struggling sometimes and we're kind of feeling like we're down in our spiritual walk with God, I would really strongly recommend that you read Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you're one of those that says, you know, that's a 
big book. I don't really read books. Let me just recommend the first chapter. At least the first chapter. Because the first chapter is gold. I'm telling you, it's phenomenal. He really puts things in proper perspective when it comes to this text. In fact, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones states in the first chapter, by the way. Most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. David, in effect, and this is back to this text, says, Self, listen for a moment to what I have to say. Why are you so cast down? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, question yourself, and preach to yourself. You must remind yourself who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. This is the essence of the treatment in a nutshell. We must understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Remind him of what you know. So rather than listening to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you, you must take control. He hits it right on the head. It's exactly what the psalmist is going through when he writes that text. You see, Paul understood that this custom, as mundane as it might be, was what God called him to do. It's what God called him to do, to preach the gospel. And he was always convinced that this is what God's calling was on his life, no matter what. In fact, what's amazing here is in this text, we see he simply preaches the word and there were some that were convinced, and a large number that believed were Greeks who heard Paul's message. Seems like a wonderful response to the message of the gospel. But as usual, it's not always all good news for a long time. Even if this was a good custom that followed Paul, with Paul, there was always some that didn't like it. And number two, the emotionally charged crowd shows up. The emotionally charged crowd, verses 5 through 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded, remember a few of them were, becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. By the way, Jesus is king. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what we have here, as typically happens to Paul, something wonderful occurs, and shortly after, a disastrous event. Someone is upset with what he has to say. And the Jews here ultimately are becoming envious of the attention that Paul is getting. And they're not pleased with those coming to the faith, just like in Philippi. A mob is gathered here, and, then, and this time in direct opposition to the gospel response. This is specifically because the gospel affected these folks, 
and the others were offended by that. They were angry, and Scripture says that they were envious, and they decided to come after Paul. In fact, here's what's interesting, and I don't know if when you read this text in your Bible reading this year, if you notice, they actually, if you looked at some of the commentators, it's, it's phenomenal what actually goes on here that we don't actually pay attention to and miss often. They actually hired professional hecklers. They hired professional hecklers to kind of stir up the crowd, to bring the city to chaos in their desperate attempt to get Paul, they end up going after Jason who housed him. They charged Jason guilty of treason for agreeing with Paul in the worship of Jesus over Caesar. When ultimately Paul was not trying to rebel against the government, he's just saying Jesus is Lord, he is king. Overall. But he also gave Caesar authority, so Paul understood that balance as well. This was more a political charge rather than a mere religious one. Folks, you have to understand, many of the things that Paul was charged with were political reasons, not just merely because he was a Christian. There was always a political play with why people went after him. What they were essentially stating was that these men were political activists against Caesar because they housed rebels like the Apostle Paul. If, if we were going to say the modern vernacular, these were political activists. Paul is a political activist leading a revolt. Now what's interesting here in this text is Jason is giving a plea deal, if you will. If he posts bail, he would be free to go as long as Paul leaves. If he didn't, it would mean almost certain death. Listen, Jason, we'll let you go, but you need to make sure the Apostle Paul leaves. We don't know where he is right now, but he better leave. When there's a point of envy or contention, more than likely there's going to be an emotionally charged crowd to follow. And many of us have been there, done that. We've all been there just as this crowd is angered with Paul. When we don't like what someone said to us, when someone's getting attention we ourselves would prefer, just as in the case with Paul, we get emotionally charged. Scripture itself speaks to this response that many of us always have and warns us about this danger that we can all fall into. Proverbs 12, 16 says, A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Job 5, verse 2, in the Amplified Version says, For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple or naive. You see, Scripture tells us clearly that our response should be, and what we ultimately should watch out for, should not be to let ourselves get emotionally charged when something doesn't go our way or we see something in someone having attention that we ourselves would like. In Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, in the New Living Translation says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You know what, church? It's natural to be angry when things don't go our way. It's natural. It's natural to put, our, put others in a bad light when they have the spotlight or something's going on that they do differently than we do. 
it's natural for ourselves to put ourselves in a better position than the others. It's supernatural to forgive and respond with kindness. It's very troubling that this occurs in many relationships where we become emotionally charged to the point of losing all rational thought and sometimes we lack the balanced approach that we are going to see here in, in the group of Bereans that Paul goes to next. Number three, the balanced approach. Verses 10 through 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Paul and Silas, as much as they wanted to stay at Thessalonica, they had to move on. They had to leave. Or ultimately, Jason's life was on the line. They had to leave to Berea at night. So this was obviously not some public event. They quietly went away. To their surprise, they got a very warm response in Berea. In fact, one of the most incredible responses that Paul will probably ever find. People really wanting to know what the Word of God says as he preaches to them. In fact, Scripture says here that they were more fair-minded, or another, another translation will say more noble, or even open-minded than the Thessalonians. What's implied here is that the Bereans were at another level in their faith, in their discussion of Scripture, than the Thessalonians were. Their acceptance of Paul's message was to the point of them being willing to make sure they double-checked. And they compared what Paul said to the Word of God, checking it against Scripture. They were the more mature group out of the two, between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. The Bereans were more mature. Their minds were prepared to receive the Word. It means that there must have been some curiosity when Paul came around and what he had to say. Because they wanted to know what Paul was speaking on. And they went back and studied for themselves and compared to the scriptures that they had already been presented with. They were not simply just going to respond emotionally, but rather rationally. When Paul reasoned from the Old Testament, they connected the dots when it came to Jesus being the Messiah. These Bereans came to the synagogue prepared to hear what Paul had to say. They were ready. More than likely, it was like homework for them to go home and study and compare what Paul said and their notes. They were w willing to cross-reference the Scripture for themselves. They checked daily to see if what Paul had said checked out. Instead of willful ignorance, they were about willful learning. 
You see, a lot of us, we have what, what I would consider willful ignorance. There are things we know we need to learn on, and we just decide we don't have the time for it. There are areas in our theology that we know, hey, you know what, this would be good for me to learn. Eh, too much work, forget it. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is it's, it forms a deficiency not just in our theology, but in our practice, which is our orthopraxy. The way we practice our faith is affected, which is unfortunately why we have an unbalanced view, unlike the Bereans, many times. You see, many people wish that they were great students of the Word of God as some of the great men and women of the faith. At least on the surface, they would say that. But when put to the test, they're not willing to put that kind of work in. Ah, that's just for them. Like, they're called to that. I'm not going to put that kind of effort in. I don't have that kind of time. Let me assure you, a lot of great men and women of the faith, it wasn't that they had more time than you and me. It's because they decided to allot their time well and spend it well. Instead of doing things that really would probably be a waste of our time, they decided to study more of the Word of God. The Word of God for many in the church is boring because they don't know it for themselves. They're, they fed off someone else's work while starving themselves spiritually due to their lack of diligence. You're going to get a lot more out of the Word of God if you put the time into reading it, memorizing it, studying it for yourself. That's for all of us. The reason why our children are bored with the Word of God is because parents are bored with the Word of God. The reason why our children don't find going to church as important is because the parents kind of find it optional. The reason why our coworkers see a difference not so different than them is because we don't really practice what we preach because we don't actually open the Word of God to let it affect our hearts. And church, the, the further and further you get away from making this a priority in your life, the more and more it's going to come out in your life. Which is one of the reasons why when there are things going on, the response is very evident whether or not the Word is working in us. Paul had an open door here because these Bereans were balanced. They heard what Paul had to say and they checked it out for themselves and it checked out. They didn't get emotionally charged like the Thessalonian crowd did, who, by the way, heard that Paul was preaching here in Berea and decided to come back and get them stirred up in there as well. It wasn't enough that Paul had just left their city. They went to the next city that Paul was preaching and they decided to stir trouble there as well. It's one of the most dangerous things, and we see this in this, in this text, the emotionally charged crowd from Thessalonica stirs others up, even those that have nothing to do with the original event. This is why it's so important for us to take our balanced approach from the Bereans. Many Jews in Berea believed in comparison to only a few of the Jews in Thessalonica. The difference was one of God's Holy Spirit working and the balance and comparing of what Paul said against the Scripture for themselves, rather than just taking Paul's word for it or outright denying it. Listen, knowing Scripture is important, and unfortunately so many of us think that it doesn't matter as much as it should in our ability to reach others with the gospel. 
As stated before, you can only give to people what you have yourself. If your tank is empty when it comes to the Word of God, you're not going to be able to share much of the Word of God. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that they can go back 20 years ago and pull something out that they remember memorizing or reading in the Word of God when they've neglected it for years. And for some reason, it's just not coming right out when they need it. Which is why what the Marines did here was daily. They checked daily. Paul doesn't seem to have much time to establish a church here in Berea. So Timothy and Silas more than likely were the ones left behind to continue discipling those who had come to the faith. You see, one of the things that we see here in that, with that crowd of Thessalonica coming back to Berea to try to stir that crowd up is it wasn't enough that Paul offended them. They had to get others stirred up about it as well in a completely different city entirely. It's not enough that I'm upset. I need you to be upset with me. And unfortunately, that's what happens with many of our relationships. When things go wrong, when things get heavy, we end up no, no longer just dealing with that situation. We've got to bring others into our problem. Before you know it, we have a poisoned well. So my conclusion this morning is, how's your faith journey? How's your faith journey? You see, we're all on a journey as, as Christians. Paul, in his travels, was on a journey are you open to the truth of the gospel? Does the word of God matter to you? Do you care that Jesus died on your behalf? Is that still resonating, believer, today? Have you trusted Christ yourself? Are you finding yourself in a good routine when it comes to your faith? Do you find it a delight to be in the word of God? Or is it more of a duty now? Or drudgery? I've got to do family devotions tonight. Which one is it? How often are you reminded of the gospel message yourself? You see, you don't graduate from the gospel. Even the, the theologians that know more of the Word of God know that they need to go back to the gospel because it's essential for everything else. You don't graduate from the Word of God. You don't graduate from the gospel message. Here's another question for you. Are you finding yourself emotionally charged by your circumstances? I can tell you right now, Facebook is proof that people are emotionally charged. Living proof that people are emotionally charged. And let me encourage you, church, to become more of a Berean rather than a Thessalonian. And I'm not talking all Thessalonians because there was a community that believed and we have two books of the Bible written to the Thessalonians. So I'm not saying all of them were like that. But I'm talking about the stirred up, emotionally crazed crowd. That can't take what's going on with Paul. They have to stir everything up. Are you finding yourself emotionally charged by your circumstances? Or is the word of God keeping you balanced? Do you understand that this is the only thing that stands between some of us losing our minds at times? I don't know about you, but I know as a pastor, this is the only thing that keeps me sane certain days. The only thing. No convincing from anybody else is going to keep me sane that day. It's very easy to just want what the flesh wants when it comes to circumstances in our lives. 
But that is precisely why we ought to check ourselves and not just others to the standard of God's Word. We need to be checking like the Bereans. Does this thing that's going on line up with the Word of God? Does my response line up with the Word of God? All of those things are important. It is many times in the mundane routines of everyday life that God works. We either listen to ourselves or we listen to Him and what His Word declares to us. And we bring that back to the equation.